All right. Well, uh, good morning. Thank you so much, Elaine. That was such a powerful testimony. I think uh, your name is really just who you are. You have wisdom. And it's, I know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, the thing I, I love so much about Elaine is that she really takes it to heart. She takes what God is teaching her and she does something with it. And that's so powerful. And I just want to say thank you so much for really being such an influence for people here in this community because it really is something powerful that God is doing. Um, so for each and every one of us this morning, let's just pray that God would speak to us uh, and that we would, we would do something with it. Uh, yeah, let's just pray. God, we just thank you so much for who you are. Uh, God, that you're doing something in this community. You're doing something in this city. And God, we just pray right now that, uh, that you would take these words of mine, God, that they would have uh, influence. They would be clearly from your word. God, that you'd be able to hear from, uh, or people would hear from, from you this morning and not just from me. God, we thank you. We love you. In your name, amen. amen. All right, so this morning is uh, a bit of a follow-up, actually, from, from last week. So uh, last week was a, I don't know if you know, but it was kind of a big holiday in terms of, uh, you know, what we as Christians, as, as followers of Christ, believe, and that's that Jesus Christ is alive. He got up from the grave, and he's alive. And it's, uh, it's kind of amazing when you think about that. God in the flesh, Jesus, God in the flesh, got up from the dead. And during Jesus' entire earthly ministry, one of the things that's a common thread throughout all of his earthly ministry, well, let's, let's just ask the question, what are some of the common themes that you would think were what Jesus spoke about? What was the thing that really he was known for? Does anybody have any ideas? Hypocrisy, okay. Yeah, that was one of the things. Anyone else? Wealth, Wealth? yeah, that's good. Josh, you got one. Love, Love? yeah. Oh, man, now we're getting at it. That's right. You, uh, you read my notes a little bit, so yeah. Yeah, some of the common the- themes, the things that he spoke about, the different things were like, love your neighbor, do unto others, love your enemies and pray for them. Don't judge, right? These are, these are some of the common things that he spoke about, but wrapping all of it together is that idea of the kingdom. That's kind of like the big umbrella picture where all of these different topics fall under that, right? And that's really, this morning, what I want to talk to you about. In fact, when we read in uh, Jesus' earthly ministry in the book of Matthew, if you uh, have your, your Bibles with you, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, later on, we're going to be uh, in the book of Matthew, um, I believe, 24. Or, sorry, Matthew 19. We're going to be there later. So if you want to hang out there, I'm going to jump around a little bit. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? In fact, in the entire uh, book of Matthew, this is the very first thing that we see Jesus saying. The very first thing we see him saying. Take a look at Luke chapter 4, verse 43. It says this, But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I was sent for this purpose, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
Let's take a look at Acts chapter 1. This is actually following right up from the Easter story. A uh, little recap, Jesus, after he, he rose from the dead, never to die again, he spent roughly 40 days with his disciples, exactly 40 days in fact, and so had over 500 witnesses of his, uh, of his life, according to 1 Corinthians 15. But let's pick up in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says this, After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. He allowed them to physically touch him. He showed them the holes in his hands and his feet. Right? He ate food with them. There's a lot of different examples where Jesus was showing them that he's alive. I'm alive. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, what's that word? The kingdom of God. There you go. Jump forward a few verses. Verses 6-9, through nine, it says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, there's that idea of the kingdom. He replied, It's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this as they were watching, he lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sights. Now the kingdom, it's really when you look at it, it's the bookends of Jesus' ministry. It's the very beginning, it's the very first thing that you see with regards to Jesus' ministry, and it's the very last thing. Those two things right there at the very tail ends of his ministry, everything in between has a deep connection to what the kingdom of God actually is. So what is the kingdom, right? What's the kingdom? Usually when we think of the word kingdom, we usually think of uh, like a geographic kingdom, like the United Kingdom, right? You think of uh, the queen who's been you know, on the throne, it feels like, for an eternity, uh, my whole life, and maybe the rest of my life, who knows at this point. Uh, you know, we think of the United Kingdom, which is essentially a geographic location. There's a, a few different countries that all encapsulate what the United Kingdom is. But actually, the kingdom of God, a lot of times we take those physical definitions of what the kingdom is, and we insert it onto what we believe the kingdom of God is. That it's some kind of geographic nature. And it, maybe it is some of that, but there's far more to it than just geography. The, the word kingdom actually comes from this word basileia. Basileia, which means kingship, rule, and authority. Uh, so here's a quick example. So uh, is anyone in here a Chiefs fan? Yeah, Kansas City Chiefs, okay. Some of you guys are like, oh, seriously, football references, here we go. Yeah, all the women rolling their eyes probably at me right now. Chiefs, the Chiefs, right? The Chiefs, Kansas City Chiefs, one of the, the phrases surrounding the Kansas City Chiefs is Chiefs Kingdom. You ever hear that? Chiefs Kingdom. So what does that mean? That's not just the geography of Arrowhead Stadium. While, yes, maybe it is on Sundays when they play there, but it's pretty much wherever people who call upon the name of the Chiefs for entertainment salvation exist, right? On Sunday, it can be on your couch, it's wherever you are. It can be out with friends. It can be anything. It's really the rule and the reign of the chiefs. Right? On a Sunday. And that's kind of the same idea as really what the kingdom of God is. Um, not to dumb it down, but God's rule, His reign, His kingdom is used numerous times throughout the New Testament, most notably throughout the four Gospels. 
And in some places, when you see the kingdom, God's rule, His reign, it's not just something that's future, it's also present. It's now, but it's not yet at the same time. It's, it's kind of both happening. You see the kingdom kind of making its way through the earth, but then at some point in the future, it's going to be fully manifested. Right? One of the ways of uh, thinking about this, I love this analogy, it's uh, thinking back about World War II. Right? You have uh, D-Day was the invasion of Normandy. That's where the, the victory over Europe was initiated. It started at Normandy. But there was still a battle to be fought. They still had to work their way through most of Europe toward Berlin to take the capital city. And then VE Day was the day when Europe was, was liberated, essentially from Nazi rule. So that's kind of the idea of the kingdom, right? There's this D-Day invasion that has already taken place with Jesus establishing the kingdom here on the earth, but there's still more to do, right? Let's take a look at uh, a couple verses that illustrate this. Let's look at Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. They say this, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Right? So you can see this is like past times. This has already happened, right? If you are following Christ, if you've repented, you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've been transferred. There's a, a physical transaction that's taken place. You're no longer in the domain of darkness but you're in the kingdom. That's amazing. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 7.21, this illustrates the future reference. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? That's referring to some future event when the, when the kingdom is made fully manifested, when it's fully consummated. Right? So that's one thing. There's also different phrases that often mean the same thing. So as you're reading through the Gospels, kind of think through, this is what he's doing when he's referring to uh, all of these different things. It's all about the kingdom. Kingdom of God, that's one. Kingdom of heaven, you'll see that also. Eternal life and everlasting life. Those are four phrases or four words that often have the same meaning. Sometimes they're different, but for the most part, they're generally the same. Right? And most, if not all, of the references related to the kingdom throughout the Gospels actually take an idea and completely flip it on its head, which is generally, this is the reason why uh, I've chosen to call this message the upside-down kingdom. Because story after story after story after story, we see Jesus coming around and redefining people's expectations for what they think is possible. Right? The whole story of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Jesus is talking through Blessed are these people, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are these people. And when he's teaching on these topics, these are people who are like, wait, what? You're talking the meek? What does the meek have anything to do with what God wants to do on the earth? What are peacekeepers? Like peacemakers? What, why are they so important? I mean, even the whole life of Jesus himself. So, Jesus being born of a virgin, uh, newsflash, that's not supposed to happen, okay? Like, I don't know if you, you know that, but that's not normal. That's not supposed to happen. Defying expectations. His crucifixion. Think about just the week before Easter, on Palm Sunday, people were ushering Jesus, who was riding on a donkey, into the city, shouting, Hosanna. 
That word Hosanna means, please save us. Please save us. They, they believed he was the king who was going to usher in his earthly kingdom on the earth, and by entering Jerusalem, that he was establishing that as the capital for essentially the, his entire earthly reign. Right? That was what they believed. Less than a week later, five days later, they're shouting, crucify him. Like, what the heck happened in between? Like, the, the perceptions, the mob mentality of people changed so drastically, and a lot of the reason why was because they were not, uh, they, they, their expectations of Jesus and who he was and what he came to do were radically different than who Jesus actually was. Right? The resurrection. I don't know if you know this, but when somebody dies, they're not supposed to get up from the dead. Yeah? Oh, and not only that, they're not only supposed to get, not get up from the dead, but they're also not supposed to live forever after that. So, all of these things happening, Jesus completely, time after time after time, defying people's expectations, and that's really what the kingdom is all about. And one, there's no greater example that I can think of than, honestly, this uh, story in Matthew chapter 19. This is the story of the rich young ruler. It starts in verse 16. It says this, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? There's that word, eternal life. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not, share, uh, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Pretty straightforward. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? I'm going to call baloney on him actually keeping all of those because, uh, yeah, I don't know about that one. And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect which is essentially what he's claiming to be, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the thing that I absolutely love and also kind of is scary about this story is like, wow, that's really hard teaching. That's really hard teaching. This guy had an expectation that you know, coming, and he's asking Jesus a question, right? He's asking Jesus a question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? But in his mind, he doesn't want the answer. He doesn't want it. He has this expectation. He's got God wrapped up in a little box, and he says, unless my expectations of you are falling within the box, then okay. That's where I want you to be. I want you to be in that box. And Jesus is like, nope breaking the box, here we go, over here, this is actually what it is to have eternal life. And the guy's like, whoa, I can't handle that. Why? Because you can't put a box on who God is, on who Jesus is, because constantly, time after time after time, he's defying expectations. Followed up in verse 23, it says this, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a different phrase right there, kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
that's kind of gross. I don't know if you, like, I visually kind of see that in my mind when he's talking about it. It's like, ugh, you know? <laughs> for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, there's that idea, sitting on the throne, right? He's ruling, he's reigning. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit There's another word, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I can relate to this story not because I have tangible wealth, unless I've got some fifth cousin out there who's incredibly wealthy and listening to this message right now, and, you know, love you, bro. Uh, Yeah. No, I can relate to this because it's the thing that this guy treasures so much, the thing that he's clinging to that he believes will ultimately fulfill him is is really not the thing that will bring him fulfillment, right? The thing that he believes will fulfill him is not really the thing that will bring fulfillment. And uh, personally, I don't know about you, but growing up... um, I probably prayed a prayer of salvation, I'll say it, we'll call it that, prayer of salvation probably like 10 dozen times, I don't know, like, yes God, I, I believe that you came, you died for me, and I want to enter into eternal life with you, I prayed this prayer so often, and it's just like, okay, sweet, awesome, that's done, you know, moving on, kind of mentality, um, and one of the things that uh, I noticed also is that I would attend these Christian conferences periodically every year. And I'd do pretty good for about two to three months. Two to three months, be like, yeah, like really feeling God's presence. I'm digging into the Word. I'm really spending a lot of time in prayer. And then it would just kind of fade away. It was almost like this spiritual roller coaster of my entire life. And it's just like, what is, what is going on? And there's a few things, uh, reasons why this happened. First, I had an improper view of the kingdom as something that was purely future tense, right? One day I will go to heaven, so why does it matter right now? In fact, just a few years ago, I heard a pastor preach on heaven, and he literally, the very opening statement he said was, our lives here don't matter because we're going to heaven one day. And I was like, that is so depressing for everybody that's sitting in this room. Like, our lives don't matter. Just walk out on I-70 and get hit by a bus. Punch my one-way ticket to heaven because, man, what else is there, right? Just trying to make it through here. That was such a a poor mentality of really like a, a comprehensive idea and view of what the kingdom of God actually was. The second thing, because I had an improper view of the kingdom as future, I pretty much chose to hold everything back from God. Right? You know what? One day I'll go to heaven, so, like, he'll, I've prayed the prayer, I've repented, it's okay, like, he'll have to forgive me, so, 
you know, I'll just, you know, I, I'll spend my time however I want. I'll interact with people however I want. I'll go downtown and drink and get wasted and party and all kinds. It doesn't matter because one day I'm going to go to heaven anyway, right? That was my mentality. That was the mentality that I had in New York when I lived there. I'm from Buffalo, New York. When I moved to uh, Lawrence to go to KU, which most of you are like, that's not surprising. You went to KU. You lived in Lawrence. Of course, you're you know, going to be sinning even worse, right? The, those people over there, right? When I went to KU, it just went into overdrive. It just went into overdrive. It's like, you know what? I'll show up on Sundays. I'll serve on the tech team in the back. I'll you know, occasionally talk to people at church. I'll put on this mask so everybody thinks I'm this amazing Christian. I've got all this knowledge. It's really awesome. And then... I'll do what I want on Friday and Saturday night. doesn't matter. You know, hang out, party, all that kind of stuff. Because one day, I'm just going to go to heaven anyway. Right? That was, that was my mentality. That was my mentality. But no, that's, that's an improper view of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is now and it's not yet. It's both. It's now and it's not yet. God is moving. He's doing thing, things through his people here. He's impacting lives. He's changing culture. He's in the process of transforming our entire society and moving around the world in ways that we can't even imagine, right? We're going to hear in, at the end from Michelle, and I'm so excited because she is study, she's down in Brazil. She's doing work with people that are considered outcasts, and she is changing. She's bringing the kingdom of God wherever she is. And it's amazing. And then lastly, the, the third problem I had is that I wasn't being discipled. I wasn't being discipled. I'd show up to church. I'd punch my, uh, my time card. Yay, I went to church, did my religious duty, my religious activity. And then after that, do whatever I want. And then when I finally understood, okay, like I need people in my life who are mentoring, who are discipling. The word disciple is, is uh, kind of misused. All it means is disciplined learner. You're a disciplined learner. You have somebody disciplining you, which is like, okay, like, I don't like discipline, to be honest with you, right? I don't like receiving it, unless you're, like, you know, masochistic or anything like that. You like punishment. Nobody, nobody generally likes punishment. Nobody likes discipline at the time, but it produces something in us. It's like my, my daughter, my two kids, she's like two, two and a half years old. She needs discipline, you know? Because why? Like, there is foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. That is, like, biblical, and I can totally understand why that was written about children, because you get to two years old, and you're like, dang, this kid is wicked. Like, <laughs> man, I, <laughs> we, they need discipline. But that analogy carries over to us in our spiritual walk as we're growing in our relationship with Christ, we need people who are speaking into our lives, who are counseling us on massive life decisions, on the challenges that we face, on the problems that we encounter. There needs to be an open environment where discipleship is taking place because without that, we're just going to be spinning our wheels. Just constantly spinning our wheels. R.C. Sproul actually says it like this, the irony of Jesus' lordship is that only in total submission to Christ can a person discover authentic freedom. The irony of Jesus' lordship is that only in total submission to Christ can a person discover authentic freedom. It's so backwards. It's so upside down. It is completely upside down from the way that it's supposed to work. 
So I have three questions for you. From the story of this young man to me, to you this morning, what are my expectations of God that need to change? What are my expectations of God that needs to change? Maybe you've never come into a relationship with Christ. Maybe how He works in your life, that expectation just needs to change. Right? That you need to go into a deeper place with Him to experience who He is and what He wants and the purpose that He has for your life. Maybe you are following Christ. You've been following Christ your whole life. There are still things and lies that we believe in our subconscious that a lot of times we don't even realize are there about how God works in, in, in the world, how he works in our lives. Um, you know, maybe it's a, a following the rules kind of mentality, like the, the rich young ruler. Maybe that was it. Like, if I just follow the rules, if I kind of stay under the radar, God is just going to love me more. Maybe that's an expectation you have. Maybe an expectation in your relationships is that, man, people need to, like, reach out to me. People need to find me, otherwise they don't care about me. Maybe that's an expectation you have about other people. Maybe there's expectations that you have about uh, how God works through uh, your finances, right? Like, oh man, like, I don't know, I got to hold back a little bit of that, that money that I can't tithe, I can't give, you know, an offering to, to, who God, to God in this process because I really just need to hold back because... I don't really believe God's going to pour out an abundance of blessing on me. Maybe not financially, but in other ways as well. I don't know what it is. Maybe there are certain things in your life that you really have an expectation, an unhealthy expectation about how God works and what, how he wants to work in your life. And I really encourage you just to, to press into that and understand, God, what is it that, what lie am I believing about who you are and how you work? And I just encourage you to go and find what the truth is and just replace it. What was the root of that lie? Where did it come from? Who told you that? Who told you what that expectation was? It came from somewhere. Just encourage you to go ahead and do that. Second question, I kind of touched on this a little bit, but what am I holding back? God, what am I not giving 100% of who I am to you? What am I not giving to you? What am I holding back? And then the last question, who can counsel me in these matters? Who is somebody who can speak directly into my life where the walls are down? I'm willing to receive. I'm not going to be like the rich young ruler who had this expectation walking into this conversation with Jesus about how things were going to be and then walk away sorrowful because I can't handle what the truth is. Yes, I want God, I want you to do something in me where I can receive from people that you've placed in my life where I can be discipled, where I can be counseled, where I can be mentored for a lot of these problems. So these are the three questions. Let's pray.